and welcome to another edition of The More the Merrier with Donna G. Coming up on today's show, I'll be running an interview that I did with playwright Amy Lee Lavoie and Omari Newton about their play Redbone Coonhound. The play runs February 7th to March the 5th at the Tarragon Theatre with the official opening happening on February 15th. Redbone Coonhound is an Arts Club Silver Commission as part of a Rolling World premiere with Tarragon Theatre and Imago Theatre out of Montreal. Music on today's show, you just heard Poso Oyo by Nax Bitota. You'll also hear Hands High by NDDO. And then ending the show with Black Sam's Everybody. The second part of the show will feature samples from the Toronto Public Library using the Libby app, and the focus is Black Canadian writers. As usual, you can reach me on my socials. Simply go to www.ciut.fm, click on The More the Merrier, and all my social details are there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G, and joining me for this interview are Amy Lee Lavoie and Omari Newton to talk about their play Redbone Coonhound. And yes, you did hear that name correctly. It's Redbone Coonhound. I gathered, Amy and Omari, that this is based on a true incident. So who wants to to start with that? Uh, Amy Lee, you want me to start? Yeah. Sure. So yeah, uh, for those who had a reaction to the name, we did as well. Or uh, yeah, I mean, at first I did, and it sparked an interesting debate. It is inspired by a real life incident uh, where we live in the West End of Vancouver, which is downtown near the Pacific Ocean in English Bay. We were going for a walk and uh, this dog came up and started sniffing me in particular and paying a lot of attention to me. And I asked the owner who was a very you know, well-to-do looking white man in fancy jogging gear, I asked him, what kind of dog is this? And he looked me dead in the face and said, it's a red bone coonhound and thought nothing of it. And I was like, what? But not before, <laughs> not before describing the characteristics of the breed, which were, oh, he can run for miles without getting tired. He has amazing, uh, amazing nose and can, you know, track sense. He was really kind of <laughs> setting yeah. this dog up for the, the, for the, the punch sad line. punchline of, yeah. Okay. Time for me to let the audience know that Amy, you are white and Omari, you are black. Yes. So um, this adds to this incident uh, that is that has happened. Amy, did this gentleman note your expressions at all? No, he couldn't. <laughs> the way he said the name was just he was beaming with pride. It was like this was his baby and he had no idea how these words would land on Omari receiving them. So that's part of, of why we thought this would be an interesting uh, subject matter to tackle in terms of the impact and power of language. Um, but no, he didn't. And I, but I certainly did. <laughs> I certainly noted Omari's expression. And I thought, we better get out of here uh, <laughs> so with a quickness. <laughs> yeah, so a, a lively debate ensued. Uh, Omari and I were able to 
unpack that encounter. You know, it, it actually over multiple days, this was something that really lived with us. And mm -hmm. of course, like everything else, you know, as artists and observers of life, we thought there's something here because we're just not able to move past this um, and our different perspectives. So I'm a dog fanatic. I love dogs. So I actually knew the dog breed before the gentleman said the name. Uh, and I was desperate for the dog to sort of pay attention to me, um, but but he wouldn't. He was very clued in on Omari. But so we have we had those different perspectives. And I was sort of coming at it from, yes, totally. These are horrible words. But in the context of this particular animal, I don't think necessarily these are the words that, you know, those words are, uh, you know, meant yeah the connotations there so i was trying to play i guess devil's advocate or something but and i didn't want to hear nothing about it i was yeah. like i don't care what it used to mean i don't care you know what the origins were in 20 whatever the time 2019 change the name let's not use that name and it, it sparked a very interesting conversation about uh language intent versus impact and the historical factors that play into why that that those words hit different for black people in particular. Yeah, as a as a black person reading those words, um, well, I remember getting the um, the email from from Danielle Morgan, the, the publicist, and I'm like, what the heck is this? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and uh, should I should I keep? I had to keep reading. Mm -hmm. I had to keep reading because. Um, First of all, you know, as a, as, a, as a Black person and, you know, Omari, you and I probably don't even want to hear the words no. um, and see the words and read about it. But, you know, at, this, at the same time, I'm thinking, who in 2022 would dare to call their play that? Here's, here's well, what's interesting. We had an actor, a lovely actor, who played in the original Vancouver production, and his agent sent him the script and before he read it he sent back an email saying uh i don't know if your company is aware of this but you know what these words mean like he was he was on one immediately and ready to like tear them a new one and then they wrote back they're like uh i think you should just read it and because <laughs> <laughs> he he just yeah he, he also like me you know knows a lot about canadian black history and he talks in schools and he thought it was some ignorant white supremacist theater company that didn't know what they were talking about I thought the name was audacious, you know, in, in 2022, 2022 um, is when it played in Vancouver, right? Uh, yeah, it played, it played a, a few months ago. It closed, yeah. 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 Yeah, and I'm like, it's like after Black Lives Matter, who would dare? Mm -hmm. But um, it, it makes so much sense, you know, because it's based on a true incident. And it is, it is a real dog breed name. Yeah, that, I know. That they acted like people like, because we actually, we had a real one come in uh, for to film for a scene in our production. And it was the same thing. The owner, lovely guy, he let us use his dog. He, he had no, even in the context of the play we're writing, he had no awareness about what those words meant. I, and I will say there, no one, well, I would, no, not no one but i would say about 90 percent of people who encounter the play have no idea that this is a dog breed no idea which i find really interesting um but it is it, it is an audacious title and i think part of the reason we called it that is because of the well the truthful nature of it but it sort of inherently gives 
people a real idea of what they're about to experience. It's like a, a real deep dive in, and uh, deconstruction of language um, throughout history. And so we thought we shouldn't shy away from the title because the play doesn't shy away from the conversations. So uh, it is, and it and it's interesting because it brings all of us into a place of conversation. It is a real uh, conversation starter. I will say that. And it, yeah, and it, I mean, yeah. oh sorry, go ahead, Omari. Well, I was just going to offer. You know, it's obviously we were. It's consciously audacious. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I'm I, I'm breaking it down. You know, I mean. I'm Jamaican, so red, and then redbone, and coon, and then hound, and I'm like, all of those words are problematic for me. Um, yep. So um, talk to me about um, writing this piece, because it's it's described as uh, a series of, of microplays. So uh, Amy, tell me about uh, the writing process, and um, Omari, tell me about the microplays. So Amy, let's start with you. Sure. So the there's two components, sort of time signatures. There's the through line that we uh, that follow the couple, the interracial couple, and ultimately their friend group. So this is sort of again post George Floyd, um, and we follow them after. Well, we see the encounter with the dog, and then the day after, and the the unpacking of that, and the way that the the dog incites. Uh, conversations between the friends and unearths um, quite a bit of uh, stuff that people are holding in, like a lot of um, a lot of hurt, uh, a lot of questions that each uh, each character really gets a chance to to unpack. And then the they're intercut with a series of we call fever dreams or micro plays that track um, the way that. I guess, Amari, do you want to talk about this a bit more? The microplays? Sure, sure. I think yeah. I'm encroaching on your... No, that's okay. That's okay. So the microplays uh, are sort of abstract uh, commentaries on some of the themes that are brought up while the friend group is going through this, um, this, these confrontations at their dinner. And they are, they are oftentimes satirical explorations or riffs on uh, popular pop culture IPs. So for example, uh, the first one is called The Train Home, and it's an exploration of the depiction of, of slavery through an often like white Hollywood lens. So it's, it's uh, deconstructing movies like Roots and 12 Years a Slave and Harriet. Um, we have uh, another one that does a similar thing with Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I don't want to spoil exactly how no, it does. No, no, yeah. But Don't spoil yeah. It. yeah. But the but the through line essentially provokes uh these 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 microplays, these satirical pieces, and they track throughout history. So it's yeah, it's it's a the it definitely challenges theatrical form. Um there's a a real a, a, a lot of opportunity to take the conversations in the through line and explore them on a more subconscious, abstract, absurd level. Mm -hmm. um, that really kind of engages what people are feeling inside and can't necessarily express verbally, you know. So it's 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 a it's a wild play. It really is. I'm always fascinated by the co-writing process. How how do you how do you do that? Break that down for me, Omari. I always say this, but it is true. I, I'm very fortunate in that uh, I get to co-write with my favorite writer, which my wife is, 
and I'm not just saying this because we're married. Uh, the genesis of our relationship actually is uh, Amy uh, wrote a play. She saw me on stage, was writing a play and envisioned me playing that role and cast me. And that's how we met and our relationship started. So, you know, to me, uh, I think it's, it's always a, a joint collaboration where you go back and forth. But I, you know, I, it's not that I defer, but I trust Amy's instincts and her voice so much that if we ever disagree vehemently on something, which isn't often, uh, I just trust Amy's uh, instincts. And Amy, you've got the black input right there. Well, actually, I, mean, yeah. I, I have accountability, yeah. And also, <laughs> I mean, I take that very seriously, but it is a very personal play. So um, it, you know, again, tracking an interracial couple and not glamorizing the kinds of private conversations that come out and the hurt and the pain and the joy. Like Omari and I are always laughing through most of this stuff. So the mm -hmm. play you know, has that inherent vein of humor throughout. It's a it's a coping mechanism, but I would hope that in this piece, it allows audiences in to those kinds of tough conversations. Um, but, you know, we, we, we joke that we're still married. Divorce did not <laughs> come from this project. Um, and it was a real back and forth. Like we really um, had a lot of fun going through it and writing it. And we have a very similar sense of humor. So, it was pretty joyful. We, sh we should also point out, although this has gotten left out of a lot of the uh, the mainstream narrative of the, of the piece, one of the things the play does is explore the intersection of, you know, uh, anti-Black racism and, and patriarchy and feminism. So yeah. while it is a play that deals with the Black experience, which of course, you know, I often would take the lead on those pieces, it also ex explores how different marginalized groups, be it women or people of color, uh, can erase each other, right? And, and, and how those things happen and the complexities of two people who love each other, but might not see eye to eye on everything because of their, their, lived, their lived experiences, how they navigate that. Obviously, Amy's coming from the, you know, a white female perspective. And um, Amy, where, where were you raised? Were you raised in Vancouver? Well, this is funny. So I'm from a really small town in Northern Ontario called South Porcupine. So not the most culturally diverse place to grow up. And part of why we were leaning into these, you know, popular IPs um, to explore the satirical edge of this play was because that was really what I grew up with. That was that was a huge point of education for me. Like I grew up watching Shirley Temple movies with my grandmother. Um, you know, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was, I think Omari and I both love that film, but obviously I grew up with that. And so it was an opportunity for us to kind of look at that and confront our very different upbringings. Um, and we always joke, like, how did we find each other? <laughs> Because I left, I left South Porcupine uh, to study theater uh, at Bishop's University in Lennoxville, and then I pursued playwriting at the National Theater School in Montreal. So my education really, I mean, was in Quebec, which is its own situation, mm -hmm. right? You know, <laughs> it's its own loaded uh, political sphere. Um, but uh, that's how Omar, where Omari and I met, but it, it really is uh, and has been a, a constant uh, learning experience for both of us. We're constantly sharing points of view, like there's stuff in the play about football, for example, and our clashing on that and the, the prioritization of, you know, 
uh, Colin Kaepernick versus, uh, you know, the amount of terrible assaults against women by perpetrated by some of these players that weren't valued as much in terms of not watching football anymore than when Kaepernick knelt down to, you know, uh, during the anthem. And then that being sort of the barometer for not watching football anymore. And so just conversations like that, where we have gender clashing against um, that and Omari and I are just sort of constantly checking each other. Mm -hmm. Omari, Omari, did you grow up in Vancouver? No, I was born and raised in Montreal. Uh, I was born in Cotonège and then I moved uh, to the, the suburbs to the West Island when I was in high school, but I moved uh, to Vancouver in 2006. So I, I, I say that Vancouver is the city I chose for a significant portion of my adult life. Uh, Montreal was the city I was born in and was given. And of course, Montreal is an incredibly culturally diverse city. And you know, I knew a lot of black people here and people different. Vancouver, not so much, but uh, Montreal is. Have you ever staged a play in Toronto before? I have, I don't think. Have you, Mark? I've acted in plays in Toronto and I, well, I, I was um, part of a collaboration with Obsidian Theatre, their 21 Black Futures that, you know, they're Toronto based, but it was, mm-hmm. um, it was a virtual project, but I, I wrote right. for 21 Black Futures. I asked the question because I'm wondering um, how you think it will play in Toronto as opposed to Vancouver. It's a good well, question. It's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I think that there are certain, I mean, we saw this on nights when the audience uh, had a substantial amount of people of color, uh, that certain things, like we, there's a whole section that's like a, an Afro-futuristic play, certain things hit different with Black audience members, certain references they, they get and they don't. And I'm hoping that because of the diversity of Toronto, some of those nuances are, are picked up by the audience, but, but one never knows how an audience will respond to anything. No, yeah, it depends on the makeup of the audience that on one particular night that'll be an interesting experience (laughs) but I I think this is what is so incredible about the rolling premiere model which is what I believe what I understand is a a more of an American model of of making theater because it's really um a process that it puts the playwright and the text um, at the highest kind of level instead of uh, the production. So you get an opportunity not only to try a, a different sort of creative interpretation with a different artistic team, but you're also getting to test the work in communities that are different and theaters that are different. Um, and that's something that we are really looking forward to as this play travels. It's a different production, of course, than the play, uh, the premiere in Vancouver, which mm-hmm. is exciting for us in a whole different way. But again, that it it's also about meeting new people um, that you know will give us so much information when it comes to uh, solidifying the text so that it's robust, that we can come away with it uh, from it with just text that really kind of represents all of that work behind it. So that's kind of the genius behind the rolling premiere model. Um, and we're really thankful, especially for a piece like this, to just see. And, you know, we love young Jean Lee, uh, the New York-based playwright. And she always talks about catering the script and changing the script based on the communities in which it's it's being received. So if it's playing in London, she changes all of the references and makes it as relevant to that community as possible. Um, so that's something that we're looking at as well. I think that's fantastic. And um, so the play runs in Toronto February 7th to March 5th, with February 15th being the official opening night. And then after that, what city are you in? 
Montreal. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I want to catch up with you guys after the Montreal run to mm-hmm. see how that goes mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. To, to, com- to compare the, the cities. Mm-hmm. I would okay. love that. Thank you so much for joining me today and talking about the play Redbone Coonhound. And that's going to be at the Tarragon in the main space. And my guests have been Amy Lee Lavoie and Omari Newton. Thank you guys. Thank Bye. you. Cheryl Fogo came of age during the 1960s in Calgary, a time when a Black family walking down the street still drew stares from everyone they passed. During her childhood, a community of extended family and friends with roots in the Black migration of 1910 across the Western provinces worked together to provide intervals of respite from racism. But as an adolescent, Cheryl struggled to understand the negative attitudes towards blackness she and her family encountered, and how she was made to feel an outsider in the only place she ever knew as home. As she explores her ancestry, what comes to light gives her the confidence to claim her rightful place in the Canadian West as a proud black woman. This beautiful moving work celebrates the black experience and black resiliency on the prairies. Those words are taken from the description from Pouring Down Rain, courtesy of the Toronto Public Library using the Libby app. Here now is a sample of that work. Pouring Down Rain. A black woman claims her place in the Canadian West. 30th Anniversary Edition by Cheryl Fogo. Read for you by Karen Robinson. This is a Bespeak Audio Editions book. All footnotes were written by the author 30 years after the book's initial publication. Dedication. For my brother Ronnie, who died November 28, 1985, without having the opportunity to know my children. For Noelle's little Josie and David L. Smith. For the second edition. So many of my people have died since Pouring Down Rain was first published. The most crushing of these losses is that of my sweet sister, Noelle. A few years ago, when her cancer had returned yet again, her daughter Rochelle changed the name of the family text thread to Nonti's Warriors, Nonti being one of Sissy's nicknames. In the last four months of her life, the Warriors gathered in her beautiful home every day to cook, clean, sing, and cry. So this new volume is dedicated to Noelle's memory to the warriors, and to those days we all had together. Also, to Julian. Preface to the Second Edition Music, drawings, and paintings, actors acting in films and plays, dancers dancing, poetry and books are the only actual magic we have. They offer a way for us to figure things out collectively. They allow us to care about a life someone lived in another time or place that wasn't ours. 
They inspire us to work on solutions for a future that we won't occupy, but that will be occupied by people we love. We're in this together, and more than any other creative endeavor of mine over a long career that is still in process, pouring down rain is me talking directly to you. How fortunate I am to have the opportunity to revisit the first book I wrote, my first major literary undertaking. I've been able to correct typos that have weighed on my mind for 30 years. I've changed awkward phrasing here and there. I've added new information that has come to light. I've taken out a couple of things that made me shudder. There are cultural references that anyone born after 1995 won't understand, but luckily there's the Internet for those. Importantly, I've been able to reflect on things I said that I no longer believe to be true. A writer's life holds many blessings and one curse. You write things that are based on what you think is accurate at the time, and there they sit forever. So if even within this new edition I've said things that I change my mind about in the future, or if I've used language that falls out of fashion, forgive me and carry on. I've also decided to let the silences stand, even if it means I've given the impression of a more cohesive family than what we actually are. There are stories in our history that are not mine to tell. Introduction Upon occasion when I was growing up, we went to eat in Chinatown. Sometimes the occasion was a visit from an out-of-town relation. Sometimes the occasion was unknown to me, perhaps unknown to everyone except Aunt Edie and Uncle Andrew, who acted as co-chairs for these Chinatown excursions. All of my family, my mother, father, sister, and brothers, all of our aunts and uncles, cousins, and many people who I thought were my aunts, uncles, and cousins— and a few people who were not black at all, but were so much a part of my world that I thought they were black in a different way, all of us went to Chinatown. We were stared at, of course. In 1965, it was rare to see a large group of mostly black people in Calgary. These days... These days From dawn till night They burn and blaze Oh, these days These days These days All those petty games Cause we don't see the same Oh, these days So take me up, baby 
Lighthouse Canada presents Son of Elsewhere, a Memoir in Pieces by Alameen Abdelmahmoud, read for you by the author. That's me. I'm the author. For my parents, whose dreams I carry, for Emily, who lights my way home, for Amna, for your Elsewhere. Yet I live here, I live here too, I sing, Seamus Haney. I still care enough to bear the weight of the heaviness to which my heart is tethered, Brandy Carlyle. Elsewhere. I am a student of migration stories. I am pulled toward accounts of lives rearranged by the journey from one place to another. If you tell me you are an immigrant or a child of immigrants, we are going to spend some time together, because I will want to hear of the ways you've had to stretch yourself to find your footing. Your story might include yearning for a home you haven't seen in some time, if ever. It might also feature the hard work of adjusting to new expectations. But neither the yearning nor the adjusting are the point. Instead, I'm interested in the constant calculus of how much of yourself to allot to each homeland and how you navigate the anguish that comes with giving one of them less. This is Elsewhere. Elsewhere is a sharp contrast between the here and the there. Elsewhere is when you are compelled to note the differences in weather and temperament and attitude and air between a once home and a now home, just because you walked past burning incense that reminded you of another world. Elsewhere is not a vast land, but rather a sharp edge you inhabit, its identity as a volcano. Elsewhere is the hot, frothing outcome of two tectonic plates constantly crashing into each other. There is violence in this, two lands trying to outdo one another, but in the fissure there is also order. Yes, there are earthquakes and tremors, but frequently there is a brief truce. Fragile compromise. When neither is raging for attention, you might find yourself teetering, but steady, perhaps even recognizing the patterns of your sway. Perhaps you pitch a tent in the dislocation. Perhaps you begin to recognize, then eventually categorize, what triggers feelings of insufficiency. Perhaps you take Hindi classes at night, or have a tattoo of a word you can't say in a language you don't speak. Elsewhere is an orientation, an emotional frequency, a chaotic compass that waits until you take a step in one direction, then immediately points in the direction behind you. 1. Son of Elsewhere It took two stopovers and 19 hours of total flying time for me to become black. I left Khartoum as a popular and charming and modest preteen, and I landed in Canada with two new identities, immigrant and black. When the friendly customs agent stamped my passport and said, Welcome to Canada, he left out the, also, you're black now, figure it out, part. In retrospect, it would have been immensely helpful, having lived 12 years as a not black person, which is to say a person entirely unconcerned with his skin color, you can imagine it was a jarring transition to make. Without an instruction manual, I was left to my own devices to figure this whole race thing out. And luckily, I had one thing going for me. 
the place I had just moved to was one of the whitest cities in Canada. This was going to be great. Let me tell you some of the boring shit that made my eyes glaze over in history class when I was in Sudan. In the early 19th century, Muhammad Ali Pasha, an Albanian Ottoman military commander, was sent by the mighty empire to wrestle Egypt from the grip of the French occupation under Napoleon. When Muhammad Ali succeeded, he was made wali, or viceroy, of the Ottoman Empire's newly acquired plaything. Not satisfied with Egypt's resources and gold, the wali commanded his son to lead troops into Nubia. As it turned out, plundering is mighty easy when you have an advanced army, so the joyride continued. The Ottoman troops rolled on south. A partial description from the work that you just heard. Arriving in Canada at age 12 from Sudan, Elamine's teenage years were spent trying on new ways of being in the world, new ways of relating to his almost universally white peers. His is a story of yearning to belong in a time and place where expectation and assumptions around race, faith, language, and origin make such belonging extremely difficult. But it's also a story of the surprising and unexpected ways in which connection and acceptance can be found. Moving on to Wes Hall's No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot. Wes Hall spent his early childhood in a zinc-roofed shack, one of several children supported by his grandmother. That was paradise compared to the two years he lived with his verbally abusive and violent mother. At 13, his mother threw him out, and he had to live by his wits for the next three years. At 16, Wes came to Canada, sponsored by a father he'd only seen a few times as a child. And by the time he was 18, he was out of his father's house once more on his own. Yet Wes Hall went on to become a major entrepreneur, business leader, philanthropist, and changemaker, working his way up from a humble position in a law firm mailroom by way of his intelligence, his curiosity, and his ability to see opportunities that other people don't. Here now is No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot, again, a sample taken from the Toronto Public Library using the Libby app. Penguin Random House Canada presents No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot by Wes Hall. Read for you by Christopher Allen. Introduction read by Wes Hall. Introduction I started with nothing. And it wasn't even a dollar and a dream kind of nothing. Because early on, I didn't have either of those. I was born in rural Jamaica, St. Thomas, the poorest parish on the island. I grew up in a plantation worker's shack with no electricity. Our only running water was a nearby river. I went to school barefoot because the only shoes I had were saved for church and special occasions. And I got made fun of for that because I was the poor kid even in a place where everyone was poor. I didn't dream of the life I have today because I couldn't even imagine it. I expected to work long hours at a tough job for very little pay, like my grandmother did, and to never leave my hometown. By most measures, today I am a successful man. 
After founding my first company, Kingsdale Advisors, in 2003, I professionalized the shareholder services industry in Canada, and I have since worked on many of the biggest deals in this country's history. I employ hundreds of people, live in a big house, drive a nice car, and come home to a beautiful family, my wife Christine, and our five children. In 2021, I joined the cast of Dragon's Den, a CBC reality show built on entrepreneurs' dreams of financial success. I am the first black dragon in the program's 16-year run. This book is largely about how I got from my beginnings to where I am now, how I survived the disadvantages that came with being born into poverty in the wrong part of the world, how I escaped abuse and abandonment as a child, how I overcame all the obstacles faced by a newcomer to Canada, how I climbed to the top of the corporate ladder as a black man, with missing rungs and everyone else taking the elevator. I hope anyone dealing with the same kinds of challenges and systemic barriers will read this and be inspired. I want to show you that just because a system is designed to hold you down, that doesn't mean it will succeed. And I want you to know that you are strong enough to drop your shoulder and run through the walls they put between you and your goals. For now, that may be the only way to reach them. But I also want to make one thing clear. This is not an instruction manual. What I've accomplished should not have been possible. My aim in describing how I navigated a system created to limit black achievement isn't to draw a map for those coming up after me. It's to prove that no one should ever have to make the same journey. In recent years, I have dedicated myself to that cause, going public with my own experiences and founded the Black North Initiative, a project aimed at ending systemic anti-black racism. Black North's CEO pledge, a detailed and benchmark commitment to combat unconscious bias and racial discrimination, has been signed by the leaders of more than 500 of Canada's biggest companies. But in the course of securing those commitments and others, I've heard the same thing again and again from some of the most powerful people in the country. I just didn't know. As a black person, it can be hard not to roll your eyes at that excuse. Systemic racism is not exactly new. I've spent my entire career walking into boardrooms to find I am the only black person there. And it's frustrating to think of top-level executives looking out over their organizations, seeing no black faces, and never wondering why that might be. But it's hard to wrap your head around something you've never experienced. And white supremacy is both foundational in our institutions and sneaky. That's how it protects itself. It hides in processes and attitudes that can seem innocuous until you look at their results. And much of its impact is invisible, unless you're the one taking a hit. Our culture celebrates people who seem to have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. But that phrase was originally meant to describe an impossible task. When I look back at my life so far, I'm immensely proud of what I've accomplished. I was lucky, yes, but I also worked my butt off and found ways forward when it felt like the whole world was trying to beat me back. I think the story of how I did that is a good one, if you'll forgive the modesty. Harper One and Harper Audio present... 
The Girl in the Middle. Growing Up Between Black and White, Rich and Poor. By Anaya Skwanowski. Read by Jomice Abbott-Pratt. children, Zadie, Toby, and Walker. Chapter One. You go on now, baby girl. We said goodbye quickly, my mother and me, clutching at each other, her urging me to go and me desperate to make her stay. Her long brown fingers and lean muscular arms wrapping around me, a small afro tickling my nose as she whispered in my ear, Be polite to these people. These people. My father's people. I looked at my grandmother, my father's mother, sitting in her salmon-colored Cadillac that was pulled up to the curb, engine idling. I had only met her a few times when I was an infant, and then infrequently over the years when my father would take me to visit her without my mother. She was a stranger to me, this well-dressed white woman in an impossibly shiny vehicle. She stared straight ahead, looking embarrassed at the commotion I was making. She was perfectly put together, her coral lipstick applied evenly, hair meticulously styled in a chic and shiny bob, that came to a curving end just below her ears. I fixed my gaze on a pair of glasses that hung from a slender gold chain around her neck. I saw her glance over at my mother, but the two women didn't speak. My mother released me from her arms but held my hand tightly, the way she would when we passed drunks in the hallway of our rooming house, a tightening of the fingers and a hard pull to her hip when a fight broke out on the rough streets of our downtown neighborhood. To feel this now made me confused and scared. She was telling me to go, but holding on to me the way she did when she was afraid, when she sensed danger. Unsure, I stood between her and my grandmother, between worlds, black and white, rich and poor. My mother held me close one last time and then opened the car door and hustled me inside. Ragged running shoes on the pristine floor mat, the overpowering smell of fresh leather as my mom buckled me in. A whir and a metal snap, the two women never made eye contact, never spoke. My mother put my bag at my feet and stepped back so that I had to strain to see her as my grandmother shifted the car into drive and pulled away, my old world retreating in the side mirror, and a new world just beyond my view. My mother and I had just ridden a subway and two buses to get to the York Mill subway station in the north end of Toronto, where we met up with my grandmother. We had started the morning in our room at a flop house near Dover Court Road in College Street in Parkdale, a rough neighborhood on the west side of downtown Toronto. Parkdale was once a wealthy enclave, glutted with large Victorian homes made of red brick from the legendary Don Valley Brickworks. 
the belching, massive brick factory manufactured the blocks that would help to build the city. Over the years, though, Parkdale had steadily fallen into disrepair and despair, and the once grand homes had been roughly divided into rooming houses. In the house our room was in, most of the ornamental plaster detailing was gutted. The original stained glass windows were shattered. The arched entrances boarded up. Garbage was always strewn in the hallways, and behind our door, a single mattress lay on the floor. My mother and I slept there together, under a faded flower blanket. We had been in the rooming house for about two months, moving in after we could no If the name of Anais Granovsky sounds familiar to you, then you might be familiar with her role as Lucy on Degrassi Street. When Anais' parents met in the early 1970s, they are foreign and fascinating to each other. Stanley is the son of a wealthy Toronto Jewish family. Jean is one of 15 children from a poor black Methodist family, direct descendants of the freed Randolph slaves. When Jean becomes pregnant at 19, Stanley doesn't anticipate being cut off from his parents, nor does the couple anticipate that Stanley, soon to rename himself Fakir, will find his calling in the spiritual teachings of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh on an ashram in India. The Girl in the Middle is a story of a child who spends her life navigating between two very different worlds. Alone, Anais and her mother teetered on the poverty line, sharing a mattress in a single room in social housing in Toronto, while her grandparents lived a 20-minute car ride away on the mansion-lined bridal path. As Anais grows up, she spends weekends having lunch with her grandmother by the pool, while during the week, she and her mother often don't know where the next meal will come from, even after Fakir returns. Anais realizes that if she wants to be loved, she has to switch identities to please each of the adult women in her family. It isn't until she gets a role in the TV series Degrassi Junior High that Anais finds a third world, her own and begins to define an identity for herself. Again, all of these books are samples from the Toronto Public Library using the Libby app. Check your own public library to see if Libby is connected to your branch. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G on CIUT 89.5 FM. And again, my thanks for tuning in to The More the Merrier. My socials at TMTM with Donna G on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks again to my guests, Emilie Lavoie and Omari Newton. And also the samples that I played, some are available uh, in ebook or also in paper as well. So check your local library. And, you know, if you have to put something on hold, go ahead and do that. Um, The focus is Black History Month, but uh, it's an impetus for you to just keep in mind uh, the creations of people of African descent. So I love the public library. It's free and it's a great leveling field for everyone. Of course, if you can afford to purchase these books, please do so and support the author. 
This is Donna G going out now with Black Sam, a defunct Toronto group that was around back in the day. And this is everybody. I'll see you next week. Enjoy Black History Month. Bye-bye. Yeah, 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 yeah.